Welcome to Square One, powered by FinTech TV. Today was a thrill on the show. We had one of the most successful tech founders in the ecosystem join us, Brad Fett. Brad has been an early stage investor and founder for the last 30 years. Most notably, he co-founded Techstars, was an early stage investor in companies like Zynga, Fitbit, Harmonix, and MakerBot, and for the last 15 years has been running Foundry Group, which has raised over a billion and a half dollars to invest in the next generation of tech companies. Brad recently wrote a book on Nietzsche and lessons applicable for founders. And in today's episode, we took a different turn and we talked about some of the most poignant lessons from the book and how they apply to building companies today. Brad, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, Brad, it's a it's a pleasure to have you on today. You're, you know, undoubtedly an icon and legend in, in tech and startups. You've had so much impact on the community. Um, but we're going to do something a little bit different today than, than we've done, at least on my podcast before, and take the conversation one level up. You, know, you recently wrote a book on Nietzsche uh, and why his lessons are applicable for entrepreneurs. And I, I want to spend the whole conversation today just diving into quotes uh, and bringing out a number of lessons through your interpretations, your research, your anecdotes. Um, so let's take a step back. Let's, let's first start with, you know, why was Nietzsche, of all the philosophers out there, why was Nietzsche the philosopher of choice for you? I find Nietzsche fascinating. Um, the way I really started to engage with it was through my co-author, Dave Jilk, who was my first business partner. <clears throat> so Dave and I ran a company together from 1987 to 1993 when we sold it to a public company. And we've worked on a number of things since then. And in around 2013 or 14, uh, he had semi-retired and, you know, continuing to do some tech stuff. Um, but really digging deep into a number of different philosophers. And Dave is you know, a very classically trained engineer. So when he goes after something, he goes deep into something. And in the context of this, you know, he was reading you know, the classics you know, and, and going through them, but also sort of diving into Nietzsche. And in that, converse, in that conversation, 2013, 15, 2014, 15, with me around Nietzsche, he would start throwing out quotes of Nietzsche's and say, you know, Brad, does this sound like entrepreneurship? You know, we'd be hanging out. And my responses, you know, generally were sure, you know, uh-huh. Yeah. Like it wasn't a very thick conversation, but at some point it had happened enough times we started talking about it. Like, well, there might be something here. Yeah. That's yeah. really when I started to dig into Nietzsche some myself, because I knew nothing about him. You know, kind of my first response, I think like a lot of people's first response was based on misinformation or lack of knowledge about you know, where he was in the arc of philosophy and sort of I'll end the fascination sort of at the point at which I started to talk a little bit more with other friends about this project, because I just wanted to edge test it with some people and see what their reactions were. So one, one that I called uh, early on was Reed Hoffman, somebody I've known for a long time and have been friends with for quite a while. And I knew Reed had studied philosophy in college and had had in, in a master's program really gone very deep on, on some stuff. And I just basically said, you know, what, what do you think of Nietzsche in the context of entrepreneurship? And he his response was emphatic positive. Hmm. And in fact, the phrase that we used, Reed wrote the forward to the book, uh, a phrase that we used that he coined is that Nietzsche is the patron philosopher of entrepreneurship. Hmm. And to put a sort of underline on, on the why of that, Nietzsche was the bridge between classical 
and contemporary philosophy. Nietzsche, you know, was well known for completely disrupting the norms of the philosophy that emerged from the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. He was in the mid to late 1800s, a time of transition for the world, you know, into what became then the Industrial Revolution. And his way of approaching everything was deeply, deeply disruptive. It was not antagonistic and hostile and provocative and negative and that sort of thing. It was disruptive. And the mapping of that against the backdrop of history is exactly what entrepreneurs are, right? They're not, you know, approaching things from the perspective of incrementally evolving what the historical norms have been. They're looking to dramatically disrupt those historical norms. And sure, many successful entrepreneurial companies are just incremental extensions of things, but the essence was there. And that that's what really turned me on. Yeah. And and to set the stage, you know, clear and, and you mentioned it, right? There is a lot that's highly misunderstood about him as a philosopher, you know, leverage for political gain on different sides of the spectrum, et cetera. I, I imagine um there must have been a piece there that intrigued you as you were diving into him more, researching him more, et cetera. One, one of the things that resonates with me is you know, most entrepreneurs, especially early on, you know, before there is any success, are highly misunderstood. I'm, I'm curious if that was, you know, intriguing as you were, as you were yeah. digging further to him. It's a, it's a super fun linkage. Um, so we have about 10 or 15 pages at the back of the book uh, yeah. that talks about, you know, what, basically what you think you know about Nietzsche is wrong. Um, the book is not about Nietzsche. The book is about entrepreneurship. And we just use Nietzsche as the guide. When I first like got, when Dave got through my, you know, distraction of other things to actual Nietzsche, I said, isn't Nietzsche that Nazi philosopher? Like I'm Jewish and like, that was my knee jerk reaction. Right. And, you know, he rolled his eyes and said, you know, actually Brad, will you know, spend a little time on this. It turns out that not only was Nietzsche not a Nazi, but all of the work that was co-opted by the Nazis and sort of creates that linkage happened after Nietzsche had died and was a function of his sister, who was a Nazi, who inherited his essentially literary estate after he died and had control of it. So you start there and then there's this whole series of rabbit holes that are fascinating to go down. In contemporary society, there was a period of time where all of a sudden, you know, the alt-right uh, had adopted Nietzsche as, as their whatever. And so Dave and I went looking for that. Like, where did that come from? Like, what's the substance behind it? And it turns out that there's like one clickbait article that's repeated and referenced thousands of times over and over again that, you know, refers to Richard Spencer and the Nietzsche thing that was said. And it's not even like... Uh, functionally, the underlying stuff is not even being used correctly. There's a bunch of other things uh, about Nietzsche that are complex. I mean, you know, there's an attribution that he's very misogynist. He had a complicated relationship with women, um, which is fascinating when you start to understand his own history. But it was the 1860s and 1870s. And so, you know, the context at the time was quite important. There is this strong assertion, not just around the Nazism, but that he was anti-Semitic. And again, as somebody who was Jewish, I was nervous about that as I started to dig into it. 
And very, very quickly, you start, you know, I start finding things where it's almost the opposite. He's not anti-Semitic. He deplores anti-Semitism. And he had this relationship with, with Richard Wagner early on. Wagner, of course, being, uh, you know, the musician, German musician that was beloved by the Nazis. And um, he actually broke with Wagner because of Wagner's anti-Semitism. So if you, you know, the, the, the level of misunderstanding, I think, is a continual human construct. And when you start to dig deep into the misunderstanding of a person or their philosophy or their impact today, and you then try to transport back or teleport back to the time when they were alive and doing whatever they were doing, and you realize all the interweaving layers of that misunderstanding in the absence of actually understanding what's going on, right? Today, um, you know, we think we know everything about everything because we have access to it online all the time. And in fact, we know more and more about less and less because of all the things that are obfuscating what's actually going on. And so all of that was fascinating to me against this backdrop to connect to what you said about, you know, entrepreneurs are so often misunderstood at many, many levels. And I think today when entrepreneurship once again is something that so many people are, are interested in, that's an incredible force of change in our society, but also a uh, in, unbelievable um, reinforcer of cultural and structural inequities, um, the dynamics of uh, language that for a long time is used around entrepreneurship that's just total nonsense. An example would be that entrepreneurship is a meritocracy. Um, all of these things are things that when you sit back a little and start to have to think about them in the context of one's own meaning as an entrepreneur, many of the things that Nietzsche was saying and doing, you know, 150 years ago may or may not be right, but are provocative. And in the same way that what an entrepreneur is saying or doing may or not may not be right, but is often provocative. Yeah, I, I like that last piece a lot. And there's, there's so much to unpack there. Um, I want to let's dig into some of the quotes, right? Let's let's get into the meat and potatoes. I picked out a handful, you know, from the book that resonated with me the most. I'd love to keep this organic, right? We can unpack each with your interpretation, uh, maybe an anecdote and applicability to founders and startups. And we can go kind of as deep into any of these, you know, as we want. I'll start with the first one, which is uh, a little bit more of a macro or an overarching one, which is when the strength of a belief is emphasized, we should conclude it is difficult to prove and unlikely to be true. Unpack that a little bit more for us. So let me just describe quickly to people how the book's structured so that this, what I'm gonna do makes sense. Sure. Um, we, we structured the book into five sections. Um, each of the sections was uh, what in our mind was sort of a broad category. And the sections just everybody has them are strategy, culture, free spirits, leadership, and tactics. This is in a chapter in the tactics section called strong beliefs. And what we did was we took each chapter is a Nietzsche quote. There's 52 of them, one for each week. It's a Nietzsche quote. There's an our contemporary English translation of that Nietzsche quote, because the Nietzsche quotes are translations from the German, but they're all open source or common use. So many of them are, you know, a hundred years old. So we tried to make it a little bit more accessible. And then we wrote a 
two or three page essay uh, on that topic. And then for about two thirds of the chapters, we had somebody contribute their own story. And we wanted these to be more like blog posts. So they're not tightly edited. They're not conforming to try to make a point. They're just, you know, what does this quote stimulate? The goal, by the way, is not to tell people answers, but back to the last comment, to provoke thoughts. So what we've done here is we've tried to, to expand what we thought were very interesting and stimulating quotes and then put them in an entrepreneurial context that would cause somebody reading it to spend some time thinking about what it was. So in this one, the strong beliefs chapter, the, the Nietzsche quote again, I'll just play it back. When the strength of a belief is emphasized, we should conclude that it is difficult to prove and unlikely to be true. Now, this is not a very challenging Nietzsche quote compared to many others where you have to read it four or five times to sort of unscramble the words. Um, but our translation of it, we say, in other words, when people highlight how strongly they believe something, rather than the underlying logic and facts that support their belief, then the belief is probably not justified. Let's just ponder that for a sec. Let me give you an example. One of the most nonsensical phrases in venture capital and from investors that you'll hear is when an investor or VC says, I'm a value added investor. And whenever somebody says that to me, my first reaction is probably they're not. If somebody has to put the modifier before what they are, they are telling you what they are rather than showing you what they are. So I don't actually want somebody to tell me they're a value added investor. I want them to show me through their actions. And that's true across the whole spectrum. When an, uh, a founder of a company is telling me something where she is constantly modifying the statement, especially with superlatives, to try to reinforce it, it lowers the credibility. And if we go back to the, the statement, when people highlight how strongly they believe something, rather than the underlying logic and facts that support their belief, and the belief is probably not justified. So you might say, well, Brad, you just told me that when somebody says they're a value-added VC, you just asserted that they're not a value-add. I said, no, I didn't do that. I said, for me, when I hear that said to me, I immediately think they're not. And the reason is I have so much experience with investors as an investor who are constantly telling me what they are through use of a superlative or a modifier versus just doing those things, that it's no longer credible to me. Yep. Let's go to the next one. The, the greatest events are not our noisiest, but our stillest hours, not around the inventors of new noise, around the inventors of new values does the word world revolve. It revolves inaudibly. I, I love this one because I think it speaks to the subtlety of the subconscious and, and behavior, which is really ultimately when you think of the best startups, whether they're consumer startups, B2B startups, et cetera, it's, it's companies that are able to get into a more innate workflow or change your workflow in such a subtle way that feels you know, intuitive, right? And so the, the quote speaks to me that it's, it's you know, making a big impact or making a big change, but not through noise and pomp and, and, and kind of screaming from the rooftops, 
but actually getting into the core, you know, human subconscious or the whole, or the core workflows, you know, and being able to have impact. This is this is one of my favorites on many dimensions. The phrase "silent killers" came from a blog post I wrote a long time ago. Um, and let me read the in other words for this: the greatest events occur around quiet rather than noise. The the world revolves silently around those who create new values, not those who produce an uproar. As an investor, my favorite companies are the ones that nobody knows about until something happens and then everyone knows about them. And I've been fortunate to be an investor in a number of those companies that were incredibly successful. And the trajectory of their success was one where, you know, overnight they became known everywhere. One of my favorites is Fitbit. Um, we invested when they were about 10 people before the, you know, notion of, of a wearable even existed. And when we invested in Fitbit, um, everybody in, you know, that I talked to around it said, well, why in the world would anybody, you know, need a digital pedometer? And of course, that was not what Fitbit was going after. It was the product that people could see, but they were really trying to create a particular type of company around the construct that I like to think of as, as quantified self, collecting lots of information about oneself and one's physical self. They spent very little energy, almost none, focusing on the investor community. And they spent all of their energy focusing on their customers and their product and the use of the product. And so nobody really paid much attention to them until the moment where, you know, I think the, the, the real sort of moment of awareness was when they filed their S1 and people actually saw how big a company and how successful a company they were. That's one on the path to going public. Um, you know, we had an investment in a company that one of my partners be, uh, became the CEO of. He wasn't a partner of ours at the time. He was a friend. It's a company called Ganip. And actually, I think this was the company that I coined this phrase around. Ganip um, had a competitor. And what Ganip did was they raised relatively little money, uh, maybe six million bucks or something like that. The competitor raised 10 times the amount of money. Ganip spent almost no time making noise about what they were doing. They just did it. And what they were were basically the company that created the middleware layer, the data layer for, uh, for the Twitter firehose. So Twitter had this thing called a firehose. And if you wanted access to it commercially, you needed to use one of these two companies to get access to it commercially. You could use it you know, on a very limited basis otherwise. And you know, Twitter built a data business but they built it indirectly through uh, these other companies. When Twitter bought Ganip, it turned out that Ganip had almost 95% of the market. The other company had almost none of it. And you know, we had as a business, it was a very successful company and a very successful outcome and it was very powerful for Twitter. Um, but Moody's view was it doesn't matter other than the people who are gonna be the customers anything about our company. So we're gonna focus all of our energy on that versus press releases about here's how much data we processed and look how great we are. And we just added this other famous person to the, this, that or the other or whatever, none of that. 
So again, thinking about like, where are you doing your work and how are you spending your time? And that is not to say that there isn't value in promotion. There isn't value in people understanding what you're doing, but kind of like the last quote, like there's a balance between showing and telling and telling is worth so much less than showing or doing. That's exactly where my mind went back to, which is actually, it's a, it's a nice kind of play on the prior quote we were just talking about, which is having this balance between, you know, how much do you actually believe, how much value is that company actually creating or is that product actually creating when you're spending, when you have to spend more of the time telling about the value it's creating, as opposed to customers actually having the product and, and, um, and, and it working for folks. There's, there's, a, there's another quote uh, that I liked a lot from the book, and it, it kind of ties to these first two as well. It speaks a little bit more to me around kind of the intentionality around organization structure, how you actually build these companies. So the, I'll, I'll read the quote, and I'll, I'll just kind of give my thought. The quote was, insanity of individuals is rare, but in groups, parties, and nations, it's the rule. And the reason why I thought that one was really interesting is because it spoke to me about, you know, the balance basically on how do you leverage the power of groups, right, for collaboration, teams, impact, et cetera, versus succumbing to the weakness of groups, right, power dynamics, groupthink, et cetera. Talk a little bit more about that one, you know, perspectively, you know, around um, how some of these companies, especially successful companies, you know, structure their organizations and harness that power of groups, but still maintain that individuality, first principles, you know, et cetera, of individuals. Read the quote one more time. Insanity of individuals is rare, but in groups, parties, and nations, it's the rule. Got it. So, uh, and you use the word groupthink. That's from the chapter groupthink, right? Uh, well, I was thinking of groupthink actually just from the perspective of when I think of individuals and I think of groups, and I think of the power of individuals versus groups. Power of individuals is you right? First principles thinking, but yep. you're not going to have, you don't have a team, right? And so there's limited impact that you can have for yourself. The power of groups is you can have significantly more impact. You have teams, you have more resources, et cetera. The danger is things like power dynamics, group thing, et cetera, revert your decisions or your judgment to the mean, as opposed to actually, you know, highlighting potentially the best decisions or judgments. Yeah, good, good, good. Uh, thanks for the clarification. So um, this chapter is relates to another chapter that's one of my favorites called Monsters. This, mm. this, this is not one called Monsters. This is one actually called Groupthink. And the, in other words, are people generally act rationally on their own, but when they get together in organized groups, they become irrational. And again, you got to teleport back in time. You got to recognize that he's being, that Nietzsche is being, you know, a disruptor and he has a a language used around him is that he, that he um, philosophizes with a hammer. He sort of, you know, smashes the hammer down on whatever the conventional thinking. And there's two words that I think really jump out here in this chapter that are important, which is the word alignment mm -hmm. and the word agreement. And I want to read the first paragraph. I just, I, I looked up the, the specific chapter. I just want to read the first paragraph because I think it reinforces what you said. The, and by the way, this is not that groups are bad or that once it's more than an individual, um, things go wrong. And this is why alignment and agreement is so important. Alignment is crucial to organizational success 
members of a team must work toward the same goal. Otherwise, individual efforts cancel each other out. I'm sure we've all been on teams where that's happened uh, and in companies where that's happened. However, there is a common confusion that alignment is the same thing as agreement. This is incorrect. Alignment is about action, while agreement is about beliefs and opinions. Alignment means that everyone agrees on what the company is doing, but not necessarily what it should do. And we say, nevertheless, it's easier to achieve alignment when there is agreement. Now, this is interesting too. Another thing that we, both Dave and I, sort of had to wrestle with, with, with uh, these quotes is that language in the 1870s and 1880s and the words that were in common usage, especially German translated into English, might be very different than words today. There's another chapter, by the way, called Obsession. And in it, the Nietzsche quote is passion. And anyone that's ever heard me talk before knows that I, I deeply dislike the word passion in the context of entrepreneurship, because I think it's very easy to fake passion. But in fact, I think it's very hard to fake obsession. There's unhealthy obsession, healthy obsession. In that chapter, as we did more research, we realized that the word obsession was not in common usage. Mm -hmm. And in fact, what Nietzsche was talking about, as we read more, was obsession, not passion, but the only real word for it was passion. So I think if you go back to this, what he's saying is something that we see over and over again, which is that with an individual, when you're working on something and you're not influenced by others, generally, whatever you take as inputs in your own self-discovery, it might be wrong, but it's generally rational. When you start being impacted by others, it quickly becomes irrational. Hmm. Or it can quickly become irrational. If somebody says, ah, eh, what do you mean? I just give you social media. It's very, very, I mean, the whole notion of echo chambers, the whole notion of if, I, if we're talking within a group of people that are not disagreeing, you will positively reinforce things that might not have been thought through or might not be correct. And the more you amplify them, the more insane it becomes. And I mean, there's super extreme examples of that in contemporary society, um, independent of what your functional beliefs are, religious or political or anything like that. You can find them all over the place. Interestingly, in the context of most companies, leaders that understand the difference between alignment and agreement are much, much better leaders. The best organizations I've been involved in have leaders who disagree with each other and challenge each other, but ultimately have alignment. And you know, there's an Amazon cliche, which is disagree and commit. Let's have the fight. Let's make a decision and then let's go commit to that, whether you were on the, you know, which side of the fight you're on. Lots of different ways to approach that, but this sort of notion that in an entrepreneurial context, one of the most dangerous things you can do, especially as a leader is confused those two. Think of all of the CEOs who enforced what they thought was alignment on the company when in fact, all they were doing was causing everybody to simply agree with them. And, you know, 
in some of those cases, things went very, very badly off the rails in very significant ways. Company still might be a successful company, but that leader ended up not being part of that success or the companies ended up getting destroyed along the way. Yeah. There was, a, there was another quote uh, that I liked a lot. I'll read it and give a little to my color. It was men press forward to the light, not in order to see better, but to shine better. The person before whom we shine, we gladly allow to be called a light. The reason I like this one a lot in the context of entrepreneurship is, you know, there's this famous cognitive distortion called the ambiguity effect, right? Which talks about how humans are conditioned to seek the road that's more determined, even if it's less optimal, just because naturally as human beings, we don't like uncertainty, right? We don't like uncertainty. We don't like risk. Those are more learned behaviors or trained behaviors through society than innate behaviors. I like this one a lot because a lot of the founders that I've invested in, right, I chat with, you know, we often talk in the spirit of company building, how important it is to have a North Star metric and a North Star mission. And you can waver on the tactics, you can waver on the mechanics, um, but if you don't have a North Star mission, um, you know, the whole company is going to be confused, right? And you're in, and especially through adverse moments or moments of adversity, it's very difficult to actually corral people to band together because you don't actually have a pathway, you know, by which you're, um, you're actually going after something, right? Maybe you can unpack that one, unpack this one with an anecdote or experience, you know, from, from the number of companies you've been involved with. But I think this one is especially interesting for, for founders specifically in founder psychology. We have a couple of sentences that I'll just read that I think reinforce it and then I'll give an example. Uh, presence and warmth are not about you, but about how you act towards others. Presence means that you are generally engaged in your interactions with a person and are listening and attentive. Warmth means that you show concern for and interest in them and their well-being. It su suggests to them that you might be inclined to use whatever power you have to help them. And sort of sit on that for a second. You think about the leaders that you respect the most, that one respects the most. Are they leaders who are constantly shining their light on themselves? Yeah. Or are they leaders who are shining the light on others? Now, we have absolutely the case of endemic false humanity in our society, especially in entrepreneurship. The big difference between false, so, sorry, false humility uh, big difference between false humility, where I pretend like I don't care, but then I still do things to orient the light so it shines on me, versus a situation where you have an, a phrase that I, I love around leadership, a servant leader mentality. As the leader, your goal is to serve the people you are leading. Um, we had a phenomenal example of this. Actually, I've had two in my working experiences with boards that I was on, I, and I have others, but I put these at the, you know, ten out of ten, on the on the on the scale. One was, and they're both good friends. One was a, a, a fellow named Samir Delokia, and uh, Samir came in as the CEO at a company called Sengrid when Sengrid was about 40, 40 million dollars in revenue, and they had started to have their growth rate decline and they had a lot of challenges. And uh, Samir came in and two years later, uh, uh, Sengren went public and a year after that, they got bought by Twilio for, you know, what at the time was $2 billion that maybe was traded up to $3 billion. 
And uh, of course, Twilio since then has been very, very successful. Samir embodied this notion of servant leader. He had such deep competence, competence and such deep humility. He was very, very comfortable being the leader, but not having to be in the spotlight. He was also very comfortable with himself when he was in the spotlight. And, you know, he never wavered on the language that he used. It was never me and I, it was always we and Sengrid. Um, another example, again, a 10 out of 10 from my world was um, uh, a, a very close friend, a guy named Tim Miller, who was um, founded several companies, but the one that I worked most closely with him on was a company called Rally Software. And Tim uh, also embodied this notion of servant leader, but he took it a step further. And you know, he had a joke that his goal every day was to show up at the office and do nothing. Uh, and at the end of the day, he'd failed miserably, but he'd go to the office the next day and try again. And he said a tongue in cheek, but the point of it was that when he showed up, his whole focus was helping everybody on his team be successful. And by the nature of that, he would then be successful. Yeah. There's, a, there's another quote in the book that ties to this. I, I'm glad you brought up this idea of servant leadership um, because I think a big part in my experience as a CEO, a big part of being a true servant leader is also understanding the exact context of the environment that you're within. So this quote, I think, speaks to that, which is, he who fights with monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. When you gaze long enough into the abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. I think that's particularly interesting both in the individual founder journey or individual leader journey in a company, but also at the company level, right? And so I think, I mean, there's a bunch of examples that come to my mind, you know, some of the biggest tech companies we have, Google, Facebook, you know, Apple, et cetera, that you know, Google has had this motto for years: "Do not be evil," right? Or you know, Apple has held privacy as a concern, but we know you know what challenges they've been through. It, it to me, it's an interesting piece because there's almost a correlation of you know, as your company scales or as you have more impact in society, you become more integrative into society. You're going from being this kind of innocuous, small, disruptive idea to, in many ways, being a reflection of the society that you have helped create. And so I think this is this is an interesting quote, you know, both at the individual CEO level or management team leader level, right, within a company, and it can kind of cascade down levels. But it's also an interesting quote and kind of philosophy to, to keep in mind when thinking about, you know, companies that are actually hyper growth companies that are actually scaling. This is one of my favorites in the whole book. Um, here's the other words, just to sort of play it back. If your opponents are bad people, there's a risk that you will also become a bad person. If you become too familiar with bad behavior, it may start to seem normal and infect your own thinking. And I think that last sentence is really the key one. All entrepreneurs make mistakes. Every human being makes mistakes. Every human being has issues. Um, I've got lots of problems. Um, I've got lots of challenges. Everyone does. That's different than having a corrupt value system. And there are so many examples 
in society, again, entrepreneurship is a subset of this, but so many examples in society uh, where people have, and you can label it however you want, whether I, I was thinking about whether corrupt's the right word to emphasize here or not, or moral, or doesn't, it doesn't even matter. You just say categorically bad behavior. And when that bad behavior becomes normalized and gets self-reinforced, and then everybody starts viewing that bad behavior as acceptable. And then you start being co-opted into that bad behavior, either passively by not actively avoiding it or actively by saying, I am not going to behave that way. You end up in this negative cycle. And we see it over and over again in companies that at their early stages had this incredible powerful, aspirational view of how they are going to do things that were going to be better. Um, you know, the cliches that abound, like we're going to change the world and we're going to make the world a better place. They're cliches, like whether you believe them or not, or their marketing language, there are moments where you look at the success of many of the companies that espouse that at the beginning of their journey. And you, you kind of almost want to say to yourself, when did, when did they you know, were they just lying at the beginning, which is bad, or did they lose sight of that? And I remember it was, you know, Google, Google was a fun punching bag for this one when the do no evil um, uh, uh, language went off Google's website and everybody said, ooh, they kind of quietly took the do not evil off their website, uh, you know, uh, uh, do no evil off their website. Like, what does that actually mean? Does it mean that they've changed their moral compass? Does it mean they made a deliberate decision or have they been co-opted? If you look at like uh, the layer of Facebook saying over and over again, and even commercial, like I, I remember there's a wave of commercials for Facebook. I can't remember when they were, where Facebook was talking about how what they were doing was they were improving the world by helping everybody communicate. Yeah. And it was juxtaposed with this incredible amplification of, of lies, manipulation, um, not real stuff that was generating basically propaganda or reprogramming the way people thought about different things uh, in the political system. And they, whether they didn't consciously didn't choose to do anything about it or were incapable of doing it, right? Some spectrum from this is good for a business so we're not gonna actually take a position or we can't because we don't have the infrastructure to do it. So let's just re keep reinforcing the positive. All of a sudden you get co-opted. There was, um, I got an, an, an uh, email request from uh, a writer today, a newspaper that was talking about the phrase, fake it till you make it in the context of entrepreneurship. And, and this writer was asking me kind of what my reaction was uh, to it. And, you know, was it, was it an okay thing to do? And you know, how what what was the boundaries? And I basically said, look, I think it's a deplorable phrase. I can't stand it. It's it's a cliche that I think should be obliterated. Um, and you know, she pressed on that some why. And I said, look, there's nothing wrong with having an aspirational goal. Yeah. In fact, every entrepreneur has an aspirational goal, like that's the essence of it. Right. There's a huge difference between having an aspirational goal, being somewhere on the path from the very beginning to the completion of that aspirational goal. But if you 
assert that you have completed the aspirational goal when you're at the beginning, that's just lying. If you misrepresent what's going on at the current time to get a customer, uh, to get an investor, to try to get somebody along the way, that's just lying. That's not okay. If you say, look, this is an aspirational goal. The thing I'm showing you, we're manually doing to try to accomplish our aspirational goal. We're trying to show that there's value. We're trying to figure out how it works. That's totally fine. And so if you come back to this, like, if you gaze long into the abyss, the abyss will also gaze into thee, right? The only way I'm going to be successful being an entrepreneur is to fake it till I make it. And then you start faking it till you make it. And then you see some people who you thought or perceived did that and were successful. You're just reinforcing this negative cycle of unhealthiness because you don't have to do that to generate something that's hugely successful. Yeah. Brad, I want to, I want to round out the conversation with the, with the question or flip back to you, which is, you know, of these 52 chapters, quotes, et cetera, what was your favorite one, right? What do you kind of, what, what's your, you know, guiding principle quote, or, you know, you open up the book, you say, you know, this is the one that speaks to me the most. I'm curious what, what that quote is. Yeah, I think there were, um, there were a couple that really jumped out. We've touched on them. Monsters was a big one for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but obsession is, is one of those chapters that probably we spent a lot of time getting right. And um, this is one I mentioned earlier about the sort of confusion about the use of the word passion versus the word obsession. I'll read it to you because it is, <clears throat> um, it does reflect on me Uh, my own values. The passion which seizes the noble man is a peculiarity without his knowing that it is so. The use of a rare and singular measuring rod, almost a frenzy, the feeling and heat of the feeling of heat in things that feel cold to all other persons, a divining of values for which scales have not yet been invented a sacrificing on altars, which are consecrated to an unknown God, a bravery without the desire for honor, a self-sufficiency, which has superabundance and imparts to men and things. Hmm. And, And our translation, again, this is, if you read this, if you get the book, you read this slowly, you read it three or four times, it is beautiful language. Like it really is. There's so much in, you know, those 40 words that I just read that you can do with it. Um, but, but our translation is a noble man has exceptional passion, but does not realize just how unusual it is. He has high standards for success, enthusiasm for things that others find dull, a sense of what will be valuable in the future, intense but unexplained motivations, courage without the need for praise, and the ability to sustain and revel in this intensity without support from others. And I would say if people listening know me, um, they'll see a lot of, you know, or I I see a lot of myself in those words, maybe is the way I say it. There are also good words that inspire and reinforce my own values, right? The, The notion of being comfortable with oneself, going places and trying things 
that are completely new, not valued by others, whether they are valuable or not doesn't matter. It's the experience and exploration of figuring out the thing. And ultimately it's not for other people's recognition, but for your own intrinsic benefit. So it's, it's just, it's one, there's so much you could do with it. That's not the only way I think to interpret uh, Nietzsche's words in that way, but that's how I did it. Yeah, I, I, I love the, um, you know, if I kind of if I sum up principles from the book, I mean, one of the, one of the things that I love the most is just this idea of, you know, however you cut all these complex topics, complex quotes, complex ideas, you know, ultimately when you're running this journey, you're running it yourself as an entrepreneur. And I, you're not congruent with yourself and your style. Um, you know, there's all, all these tactics or cultural pieces, et cetera. There's going to be some breakage at some point in the journey. And I, and I think the key in many senses to keep congruent with yourself is, you know, to, to recognize kind of uh, recognize that that internal voice that's guiding you, you have to continue to maintain you know, the semblance or the sanity of that, right? Whether it's getting influence from those in your community, around you, whatever it might be. But that's really what you know what guides you on the journey. I, you know, Brad, this has been great. I, I love the book. I, I encourage really everybody listening to get it. This was definitely a different type of, you know, episode we've done on the show. But it's it's one of those where you know these lessons are so timeless, right? By definition, I mean Nietzsche wrote these words, you know, what 150, 170 years ago, right? And so um, I think they're highly applicable whether you're going from zero to one, you're scaling post product market fit. Um, so it was a ton of fun to have you on and. You know, hopefully we'll have you back on for round two. There's so many other, you know, topics, startup topics, uh, tangible topics to talk about. But I think from a philosophical perspective, you know, I really enjoyed this conversation. It was a ton of, ton of fun to have you on today. I mean, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun for me too. And I'm, uh, uh, it's now that the book has baked some and settled and been out for a couple of months, like it's really fun to go back and and sort of reread a few of these things and dig deeper into them. So thanks for spending the time to pull some of them out.